52 episodes to science fiction film literacy with your host, Christopher J. Garcia. And it starts now. With the possible exception of the Western, no genre of film requires more in set and costuming to set the tone for the film more than science fiction. And you can think of it instantly. Think of Barbarella. The minute you think of Barbarella, you have an image of Jane Fonda in that outfit. You know the one. It is so important to set the tone of the entire film with your set so that when you look at it, you know you've been transported into somewhere new. There has been very, very little done any better than Fritz Lang's Metropolis when it comes to setting the tone and the style of a film through sets, and in this case, models. Because the setting, Metropolis, is this massive, massive, well, Metropolis. Let's start with the very basics. Metropolis is about this futuristic city. And the city's master... Master class, I guess is the best way to put it, is a stratus is a strata at the top, and at the bottom, of course, is this worker class. Well, the son of the city's head basically is a wastrel, and sort of lives in this pleasure garden and does all this wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, and he ends up meeting Maria, who is a... Let's just put it this way. She is an innocent in a way. And she wants the children of the working class to experience what it's like to be the rich. So she brings them to this pleasure garden area. Well, after Freighter goes down and sort of starts to experience what's going on with the uh, the working class, as it were, uh, he doesn't... Things happen. And there's a mad scientist named Rotvang. Uh, I don't know if I'd say he's a mad... Yeah, he's a mad scientist. Uh, there's, of course, a robot and the false Maria. Both of them played by Brigitte Helm, who does an amazing job and is one of the actresses who I think really... really should have gone forward and been a much bigger star in the U.S. Supposedly she was uh, cast as, or was considered for, the role of the bride in The Bride of Frankenstein. And while Elsa Lancaster did an amazing job, I would have loved to have seen Brigitte Helm in the same area. There's... The biggest character, though, is Metropolis, is the city. And the design is so incredible. It takes elements of the Tower of Babel concept. And if you look at the uh, painting by Bruegel, the most famous painting of the Tower of Babel, it's nearly exactly what the new Tower of Babel looks like. If it had been designed by someone being told what the Tower of Babel was and then deciding to do it in this sort of brutalist art deco concept. And this is actually one of the films I think is that is really important to the history of brutalism. 
And brutalism, of course, is sort of this postmodern architecture style that often allows the utilities to be seen. It is not... Buildings are built for utility more than for beauty. And at the same time, they're making strong use of angles and of odd proportions. And here you can see these like huge raised platforms with cars going across them, and you see a lot of where the utilities go, and it, a lot of these buildings look like they could have come out of the 1980s. But what's amazing is that Metropolis sets the tone every second. When you look at Brigitte Helm, even when she's the false Maria, which, by the way, one of the greatest effects is seeing her face being superimposed onto the robot. That's just one of my favorites. But when you see the city, you're automatically transported to this sort of best-slash-worst-of-all-possible-worlds. Because, honestly, this is a utopia for the cream floating on top of the coffee. This is a dystopia for the coffee. And I have to admit, I stole that from a Twitter post I saw not too long ago, but still. The the stratification of society that you see here, yeah, it totally echoes where we're at right now. And that's a shame. But the way that they they shot it was amazing. And it brings, every time you see a long shot of the city, it brings this new idea into your head. <laughs> every shot has some sort of I don't want to say forward motion, but it a shot of the city brings you out of an emotional state into, in a way, the wilderness. You're being left alone in this city. You realize that you are a small cog, an unimportant part to this massive edifice. And the rest of the world that goes on is unimportant compared to this massive thing that is standing against it. And that plays in so well with this sort of pro-socialist message that Lang was putting forward. This was a demanding shoot, and it was really expensive. I want to say it cost more than 2 million Reichsmarks. Oh, I'm sorry, 5.1 million Reichsmarks, it says here. Uh, which, I guess, makes sense. It's beautiful and getting all of these sort of exacting models would have been insane. Uh, there's, a, there's a story that there's a scene where the worker city, the city where all the workers are, is flooded. And Helm and 500 children from the slums of Berlin were basically had to work for 14 days in a pool of water. That they kept it a low temperature to get them, you know, looking freezing. That would not fly today in uh, with our current laws of, you know, any sort, really. Now, this is also a story of rediscovery, reinvention, repurposing, reimagining. 
there have been a couple of, uh, I don't want to say re- reimaginings, but their most popular is there's an anime that was done of this, I believe in the 90s, and it's pretty good. There was an original score uh, done by Gottfried Huppertz, which was sort of a combination of Strauss and Wagner. Uh, I've actually heard it. It's pretty good, actually. Uh, this has been recorded a bunch of times and used in a bunch of different versions. Uh, one interesting thing is I saw I saw it done uh, on a orchestra in, I want to say Boston. It was either Boston or uh, Providence. And they performed it, and it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, until I realized that they had slowed it down. Like, considerably. There are... And very, very few... Very few versions actually use that score. And as it's been re-released over the years, because... While we only knew a truncated version of Metropolis for years and years, it's been released on DVD and VHS and Betamax and Laserdisc and so on and so forth over the years, and shown on TV in dozens of different forms. People have been doing different scores for it. Uh, Hugh Davis and uh, William Fitzwater uh, did a score for it in 1975 for the BBC. Uh, Giorgio Morador uh, restored and produced an 80-minute 1984 re-release, which was a really interesting, but I think poorly conceived electronic soundtrack, which used Pat Benatar, Adam Ant, Loverboy, Billy Squire, and Freddie Mercury. You'd think with that much talent it would make a lot more sense, but it didn't quite. Uh, The Alloy Orchestra, for years, made huge amounts of their... uh, their tours was playing, I want to say, the truncated versions of uh, the of Metropolis with a new score. Uh, there's a party scene, and their jam on that section is just so amazing. And they're like entire like bands of the Degenerate Art Combo, for example, uh, would come up with new scores for the film. And it's, it's a great film to do it with, because there's so much to play off of, so much to work with. Now, what's fascinating is, it's obviously a classic now. It is the defining silent film. Science fiction. And you have from A Trip to the Moon as the other one there which has now sort of been buoyed up because of Hugo. That said, this has so many images that are subconsciously ingrained in film fans that it will forever be that one. Uh, I want to read from Roger Ebert, because this is one of my favorite quotes of his overall. Uh, Metropolis is one of the great achievements of the silent era, a work so audacious in its vision and so angry in its message that it is, if anything, more powerful today than when it was made. And that statement is more powerful today than it was then. Because what we're seeing is this happening. And I live in the Bay Area. And the, what I call the Santana Row effect, trying to coalesce large numbers of people, in this case, tech pioneers. Not tech pioneers, but tech workers. Into these large 
high-density buildings that have the combination of retail and entertainment and all of this in one place. And on the top you have these incredibly expensive housing units. And they're starting to go upwards. And what's happening is we're seeing a stratification, literally a stratification. And in San Jose is a perfect example. The poor live in low apartment complexes where the first floor is that other family. Or they live in single-family homes that they're having trouble paying rent for. While the large tech class lives above a pinkberry. We're seeing this happen. And I don't know if this is an adequate warning for us. But it certainly should be. There's a ton of important uh, restoration stuff to talk about also. Uh, there have been at least six different versions of the film released all over the place. And remember at this point, you, when you went to show a movie in the U.S., you had to pass it through each state's decency board. So a lot of times there'd be different cuts that could be shown in different states. This is also true of many countries, so if you, when they brought it from Germany to elsewhere, they would have to cut it to meet those countries' decency standards. So, eventually, you had to make attempts to put together the whole film as it would have originally been. Now, in 2007, we got what is the closest, and almost certainly the best, version of it done. And that includes some of the tints and all of the things that we needed to be able to say we have the whole version. And I think uh, one of the guys who is really important to this is a uh, is an Argentinian uh, film Argentinian film museum curator and collector, uh, Fernando Martin Peña, who was amazed when he heard someone talking about the length of Metropolis. And the version that was sort of running around at that point was much, much shorter, about, I want to say, 25 minutes shorter than the version we know today. Maybe even more than that. And so he figured that the guy who had watched it, the cinema club manager, had seen a more complete version than he had ever seen. And then more people started examining their collections, and particularly the National Archive of New Zealand. And in 2010, Kino in the U.S. released uh, The Complete Metropolis, which is a wonderful, wonderful, amazing film. Uh, it's interesting in that it is currently under, under copyright, and it will remain in, under copyright in Germany until uh, 2046, and in the U.S. until 2022. It's an art argument here, because it's, it's going to be one of those interesting things we'll see in, like, six years, if they come up with a way to re-copyright it. Usually what they do is they come up with a way to copyright the soundtrack, and if someone rules that a soundtrack is intrinsic to the work it's essential, then you can do it. But since it's a silent film, it's a harder road to play. 
like I said, there have been other adaptations. Uh, there's a manga. There is, of course, the uh, full-length anime, which was 2001, it turns out. Uh, there's a musical theater version called Metropolis. And in 2007, producer Thomas Schulhe, I think, uh, gained the rights to remake Metropolis, but it hasn't gone anywhere. Partly because this still plays. It's one of the very, very few silents that can still work today. I'd say there are like five. Metropolis, Safety Last by Harold Lloyd. Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. The Circus by Charlie Chaplin, which I think is highly underrated. And The General by Buster Keaton. That's about it. Those are the, like the five that really play for a non-hyper-film geek audience. So this is a hugely important film, and I really think that it is worth worth exploring. But always remember what you're watching is the creation of setting through sets, through costumes. And that this is the influence, not necessarily for Star Wars, though a lot of the same tricks are used, but for The Matrix, for sure for Dark City, the 13th floor. All these things really come from Metropolis. That's one of the reasons why it's the most important science fiction silent film ever made. Stay tuned for our next edition, which will be our first non-silent, and that is Frankenstein. And... I have so much to say about that. I don't know when it's going to happen because I have to rewatch it again. But let me just say this it's awesome. Thanks for listening. <laughs>